and 9. 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 8. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our majestic Lord and gracious Father, as we consider your patience toward us, I ask that you would remove any obstacles that would hinder us from seeing this powerful, glorious attribute. And I pray that genuine repentance would be a characteristic of our lives. Isaiah tells us that you look to the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at your word. May each one of us listening today reflect that disposition. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs) Only evil continually. Genesis 5, 6 says that when God looked at the antediluvian world, that is the world before the flood, he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. His heart wasn't evil some of the time, or a lot of the time, or even most of the time. His heart was only evil all of the time. This will not be a fun exercise, but try to imagine a world in which men and women think and dream and plan only evil continually. Imagine the corruption and vice and perversion and violence that would flow from such a heart. A wickedness that God would have no choice but to judge the world. Now, how did God react to these sinners? Perhaps we could ask, how would you react to these sinners? For how long would you tolerate the people who mock you, scorn your laws, and abuse one another on a daily basis? This is God's response that we find in Genesis 6.3. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. If I can paraphrase, the Lord is saying, I've had it with these rebels. My patience has run out. Mankind is going to be judged in 120 years. I love that because God is so patient that even when his patience comes to an end and he has no choice but to judge mankind, he is still long-suffering. There's a great story about the atheist Robert Ingersoll. Uh, He died in 1899. He would often stop in the middle of his lectures where he would blatantly blaspheme and mock God And he would say, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I've said. And then he would pause for a dramatic effect. And I'm sure everybody was like, can't believe he said that. And then he used the fact that he was not struck dead as proof that God did not exist. 
someone told Theodore Parker about this drama from The Atheist, and his remark was, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? Last week, we saw that Peter addresses those who were scoffing at the promise of the coming of Christ. And I made the argument that this coming of Christ wasn't a reference to his second coming, but his coming in judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple. And if you were with us, we compared Matthew 10, 23 and Mark 13, 26 and 30. And we did that because we have two time indicators about this coming of Christ. In Matthew 10, 23, Jesus told his disciples, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So before the twelve disciples go through Israel, the Son of Man will come. And then we turn to Mark 13, 26, where Jesus said, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then verse 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus says, I will come before the disciples finish going through Israel. I will come before this generation passes away. And I won't repeat the exercise here, but we looked at Matthew 10 and Mark 13, and we saw that there were no less than 19 exact parallels. Not just close parallels or questionable parallels, but 19 exact parallels. And my point was, in making those parables, is that I think we can come to the conclusion that Jesus is talking about the same events, and he's describing the same coming, even though he's using different language. He's talking about coming in judgment within a generation. Now, the Olivet Discourse, which talks about the temple being destroyed, where Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, was given roughly A.D. 30. Second Peter is written roughly 67 or 68 A.D. What I failed to mention, and one of you observant listeners last week said, you didn't mention 70 A.D. And I said, oh, I can't believe it. I had it right in my notes. Mark, you know what that's like? You have something in your notes and you forget it's there. That's important because Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., which means Jesus gave this prophecy about his coming in about 30 A.D., that generation is almost coming to an end. We're right at the end. It's 67, 68 A.D. Still, the coming hasn't happened. So the scoffers think that they have ammunitions for mocking the coming of judgment. And they're saying, where's, where's this coming of judgment? But it is right around the corner, coming in approximately two years. The sad irony is that these scoffers should have been celebrating the patience of God because it was giving them an opportunity to repent. But instead, they actually mocked it like Robert Ingersoll. Now, what I'd like us to do this morning is consider this patience. And if you're taking notes, I have three points. I want to look at the God of patience, and then the purpose of patience, and then the source of patience. 
So let's begin with the God of patience. Verse 8, Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, too many Christians have used this verse to dismiss the time frame references. As if to say, don't worry about the time frame references. You know God, with him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are are like a day. But we want to be careful not to do that, because we do have very specific time frame references. I like what Peter Lightheart says in his, his commentary on 2 Peter, and he calls our attention to these time frame references. He says, God is a God of timetables, the God who revealed a calendar to Israel with very specific dates, who promised to redeem Israel from Egypt 400 years after Abraham, who brought Israel out in the fourth generation, who delivered the Jews from Babylonian captivity after 70 years, and who then promised to send Messiah after an additional 70 weeks of years. Scripture and the God revealed in Scripture is concerned with specific times and seasons. When he says he will do something within a period of time, he will do it. So I think that is very important. So we can't just dismiss these time frame references. That's not what's being told here. Don't worry about the time frame references. God is on a completely different clock than we are. Now, here's something that everybody agrees on with this verse. This is beyond debate. This verse, verse 8, is a reference to Psalm 90, verse 4. And if you like, you can turn to Psalm 90 if you want. And something to realize about Psalm 90 is that it compares the eternity of God with the brevity of man because of judgment. And that is the context in which we find this passage about God having a different timetable. What I'd like to do is read verses 1 through 12 so that you can see this verse in context. And we should understand this verse in context. That's important. When you see a New Testament author quoting from the Old Testament, he has a context in mind. He's not just saying, oh, this is a nice phrase. I'll use it. There's a context involved. So I want you to see the context. And I won't read the whole thing, but I will read verses 1 through 12. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, 
or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. One thing is clear about this verse and this passage. God is eternal. He has all the time in the world, but we don't. Our days are limited, and that is because of the judgments of God. And as we number our days, that will give us wisdom. I remember years ago listening to a pastor expound on on this passage, and he said, I have a, a New Year's Eve exercise that I go through, and he said, it's a little morbid, but I do it every year. And he said, what I do is I consider how old I am and then how many days I have left if I will live to be 70 or if by reason of strength, 80. And I thought that's sobering. I wasn't planning on doing this, but as I went through the message this morning, I thought I should just calculate my days. So I just did it roughly. I'm 58 years old, in case you're wondering. And if I live to be 70, that means I have 4,380 days left. And you know what I thought as I did that this morning? Ooh, that's not really a lot of days. If I live to be 80, I have 8,030 days. Just a little over 8,000. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but that struck me as life goes by pretty quick. And, and Moses says he's the author of this psalm. If we number our days, that will give us a heart of wisdom. And we need to remember that, that perhaps with God, a day is a thousand years, but our life is brief. It's like the grass. We can be here in the morning, gone in the evening, and we need to be prepared to meet with God. And that's at least part of the message that's going on in Second Peter with these scoffers as he talks about the coming of judgment. And then in verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord hasn't come in judgment because he is patient. I wonder if any of you have experienced the patience of God recently. If you're wondering if I have or not, let me help you out. Did any of you sin this last week? And I'm not asking if you sin more than your spouse or your kids or your neighbor. Have any of you sinned? Did any of you sin this last week? And I will help you out again. You did. And yet, here you are, still living and breathing. You've lived to see another day. Why is that? Because God is patient. In all seriousness, that's, that's why. I love what the Puritan Stephen Charnock said in his classic two-volume work, the, the Existence and Attributes of God. He made this sobering statement. Every man has sin enough in one day to make him stand amazed at divine patience. That is true. That God is patient with us sinners every single day. Now, I want to make sure that we're on the same page as we talk about 
patience because there can be a, a superficial definition or there can be a more biblical definition. I think often we have a superficial definition of patience in mind. You know, we think it's just waiting a long time. You know, this last week I was on a three-way call and I'd switched insurance companies. So I talked to my one agent and she said, stay on the line. We'll call your other insurance company. And so I was doing that. And, and the message said, we will be with you in five minutes. And, and I said to my new agent, I said, you think it's going to be five minutes? We waited. I said, well, there's our five minutes. It's now been 10 minutes. We were, we were having fun. Well, we're up to 15. <laughs> well, it's now been 20 minutes. I think finally after 25 minutes, the other agent got, got on the line. And I know you're all impressed that I would be willing to wait patiently for 25 minutes to get somebody on the line. So that's one definition of, of patience. But there's, there's a more biblical, deeper definition that's, that the Bible has in mind. And John MacArthur does a great job as he uh, describes it in his commentary. And this, this is on 1 Corinthians 13, commonly known as the love chapter. And this is from verse 4 where Paul begins by saying, love is patient. MacArthur writes, love practices being patient or long-suffering, literally long-tempered, being slow to anger. The word is common in the New Testament and is used almost exclusively of being patient with people rather than with circumstances or events. Love's patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. Chrysostom, the early church father, said, It is a word which is used of a man who is wronged and has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Patience never retaliates. So if you want real simple illustration, think of a man who's slapped in the face again and again and again and can easily destroy the other person, but he will not do it because he is patient toward that person. Now, we need to clarify something here, that while God is patient, there is an end to his patience. After 120 years, the flood did come and destroy the people who were alive during the days of Noah because they failed to listen to Noah as he preached and entered the flood. In 70 AD, judgment did come upon the temple and Jerusalem, and those who did not heed the words of Christ and flee the city and go out into the country, they were judged and another judgment, a final judgment, will take place with the second coming of Christ. So God is patient and patient and patient, but there is an end to that patience, and we need to keep that in mind. So that's the God of patience. Now we want to look at the purpose of patience, and Peter is really clear here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, at this point, we could get sidetracked with all kinds of theological issues, like how do we bring together the sovereignty of God in election and man's responsibility to repent? How do they relate to one another? But I don't think that's necessary. We all agree 
that God calls upon us to repent, and we must repent. We are responsible to repent. There's no debate among Orthodox Christians about that. But what does it mean to repent? Sunday school teacher once asked her class, class, what does it mean to repent? And one little boy raised his hand and he says, being sorry for our sin. And she said, that's, that's good. And a little girl raised her hand. And she says, being sorry enough to quit. And I thought, ooh, that's, that's a good answer. I think one of the best answers to the point that really uh, gets to the center of it is found in the children's catechism. Question 56, what is it to repent? To be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. That's repentance. I'm sorry for my sin. I hate it. I'm turning away from it because it displeases God. It, it upsets God. And that's what we're called to do. Turn away from our sin because it displeases God. And this is one of the themes that we see in the Bible again and again and again. We, we see it with John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 1 and 2. We read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Mark 1, 14 and 15, we read Jesus. And this is the very beginning of his ministry. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus comes, takes up where he left off. Repent and believe the gospel. And then Peter preaches his first official sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts 2, 38, he says to the people, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we could talk about Peter's second sermon. Anybody want to guess what Peter talked about in his second sermon? The need to repent. Because if we're going to be saved, we need to turn away from our sin and put our faith in Christ. Now, I want you to notice the heart of God in this passage. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you see that? God not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Ezekiel 18, 23, the Lord says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? In other words, God is saying, I don't want to see man judged and die. I would rather that he turn. That's the heart of God. And then Romans 2, 4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patient. God is kind so that we would repent. Have you repented? Have you turned away from your sin? I didn't ask if you were religious, if you go to church. I didn't ask if you were a good person. It's fascinating how when you talk to people, they want to tell you how good they are. (laughs) 
talking to a man at a health club just, just this last week, and I mentioned that, that I was a pastor, and he said, oh, you're a pastor, you're closer to God. He said, but I work really hard, and, and I try to be a good person, and maybe I'll have another opportunity. I know, I know who he is, but that's not, it's, the question isn't, do you work hard? Are you trying to be a moral person? The question is, have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ? That's the, that's the question. And these scoffers failed to realize that God's, quote-unquote, slowness was actually due to his kindness. He was giving them an opportunity to repent. So there's the God of patience, the purpose of patience, and then the source of patience. How can we be patient? This really is the $64,000 question, right? How, how can we be patient? And if you're wondering, why is it $64,000? Ask Chuck. I'm sure he could tell you the answer to that. But here's how we can be patient. Think of 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And I love what John Stott said about that verse. He said, all our love is a response to and a reflection of God's love for us. And I think we could say the same thing about patience. We are patient because he was first patient with us. And couldn't we also say that all our patience is a response to and a reflection of God's patience towards us? You know, we're, we're going through uh, the fruits of the Spirit in our time of confession. I don't know if you realize that. That's what Michael is doing. So next month, he's going to talk to us about patience. I can't wait a month. So I'm going to talk to you about it now. But the fruit of the Spirit, <laughs> Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience. I hope you got it. I set you up. That's <laughs> peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Write it down. The list. It's a fruit of the Spirit. What, is, what does that mean? That means that we can be patient because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And one of the reasons why God has placed the Spirit in you is so that you can be more patient. That's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. But so that you can have the power to be patient. Because in and of yourself, you don't have that. But as Christians, here's something we should appreciate. We have resources available to us that the world doesn't have. Last week in our time of confession, I talked about the need to forgive others who have wronged you. And again, I asked the question, well, how can you do that? Because I'm trying to be as practical and helpful as possible. And I had three verses for you to help you forgive others. The first was Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how can you forgive those who have wronged you? In the same way that God has forgiven you. So as you've experienced that forgiveness by God, that enables you to forgive others. And then there's Matthew 5, 44, where Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So having trouble forgiving someone who has wronged you, pray for them. And I would advise you, pray for them until you can forgive them. The bitterness dissipates and you can move on. So pray for them. That's a way that you can forgive another person. And then 1 Peter 2, 23, 
Speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So how can you forgive a person who has wronged you the same way Jesus did? By turning them over to God and basically saying, Lord, you see what this person has done to me. You know that it's wrong. You take care of it. And then you can say, oh, good. God's going to take care of it. Now I can be nice to them. I can forgive them. And I can move on. What I didn't say last week, and I'm going to say it this week, is what's fascinating about that is these ways of forgiving another person, I think, can only be done by a Christian, by a person who's been born again. Because only a Christian knows what it's like to be forgiven by God. One of the great things about having a quote-unquote more dramatic conversion experience, if you will, like mine is, you know your sin's great. When, when God forgave me, I, I knew what I deserved, and I knew that he had forgiven me. And because of that, that can enable you to forgive others. And even if you came to Christ when you were five, if you can understand God's forgiveness towards you and what you really deserve, that enables you to forgive others. And only a Christian can truly pray. So only a Christian can, can pray for someone who's persecuted you. Think about that. Liter, literal persecution. Think about Jesus on the cross, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what, what they do. I think that in part explains why the centurion was converted. He had seen many executions, but never in his life did he see someone being executed, asking for them to be forgiven. How could he do that? By the power of the Spirit at work within him. And then how about turning those people over to God, trusting God to bring about justice? What does it take to do that? takes faith, doesn't it? I think we would all agree with that. It takes faith, which means these are resources only available to the Christian. I'm not saying non-Christians can't forgive in a certain sense and let things go. I'm not saying a non-Christian can't be patient in, in some ways. But in other ways, I, I don't think their patience can even rival that of the Christians. And We should appreciate what God has given to us so that we we can be patient. We're not, we're not doing this in our, in our own strength. And as we exercise this, this patience, it's amazing the impact that, that it can have in the lives of others, how it can transform the lives of others as they see us being patient when we're, when we're wronged again and, and again. There's a great story about Abraham Lincoln, and it's, it's about his earliest political enemy, Edwin Stanton. Stanton referred to Lincoln as, quote, a low, cunning clown, the original gorilla. Stanton said it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. Aren't you thankful that today we don't have name-calling in politics like that? Aren't you think that we've, we've moved beyond that? Lincoln never responded to the slander. But when, as president, he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. When his incredulous friends asked him why, Lincoln replied, 
because he is the best man for the job. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and said through tears, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's patience. By Lincoln being long-suffering and not retaliating. Patience won him over. And our patience can do the same to others, just as God's patience has won us over. Let's close in prayer. Father, how thankful we are for your patience extended toward us. Father, I pray for all of us that we will respond to your patience as we should with repentance. And Father, may we remember what Martin Luther said in his first of the 95 Theses, that when Jesus called upon us to repent, he meant that our entire life should be one of repentance. Father, I pray for this congregation that we will be characterized by a spirit of humility and repentance as we own up to our sins. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your patience towards us, which you exercise every single day of our lives. Help us by your spirit to reflect that, that attribute in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.